So thanks for having me, Kyle. Um, I'm Ozoz. I currently live and work in Mississauga, Ontario, Canada, land of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. I moved here in January of 2020, and I'm currently a museum and cultural management student. But food is a major part of my life. It is the lens through which I explore the world, I, through I see the world. It's, I find it a useful marker for exploring all the ways we are connected across borders, landscapes, in spite of our differences. So that's me, food explorer, museum student. Yeah. Uh, you had shared an article that you thought that museums could learn from. Can you uh, summarize that? So I read an article in a magazine called Food and Wine. And I thought it was very courageous on the part of the magazine, right? Because the article they shared chronicled an event where they messed up. They had written about a Mexican, written a me Mexican recipe and had written the backstory about it. When it came time to photographing the recipe, they brought contexts that were foreign to the Mexican context. They didn't consult the people they had consult the Mexican people they had worked with to develop the article. And if they had, they would have understood that some of the pairings and props they had put in the scene when the style of the photo were foreign and unacceptable. And so they, the Mexican chefs on seeing the publication said, this isn't Mexican, this isn't mm -hmm. right, this isn't the way we would share it and express it. And what I really loved was that Food and Wine owned the mistake. Not only that, they went ahead to share everything, share the context, share the issue. And even after that, they went on to propose a step for approving and going through a process of recipes that they weren't familiar with. So they created this framework for analysis to ensure that in future, when they do develop recipes where they have little or no cultural context, no agency, no ownership, they can get it right. And I thought that was amazing. This whole owning up, acknowledging what you've done wrong, but then going ahead to create a step-by-step -step process for addressing future collaborations and explorations. Can I ask what, when you read that follow-up in Food and Wine, what went through your mind? Do you recall? I was like, oh my word, no pride. There's no arrogance. There was no this is how we do it and this is our own take. And there was no shame either. There was just a very respectful acknowledgement and apology. Because what happens too often when people get into situations where they do something wrong is they become very defensive. And it becomes more about being right than about addressing the issue and correcting the wrong. 
and I, I, I love the grace with which <laughs> Food and Wine owned that era. But that wasn't sufficient for them. They wanted to make it right. And I think that was the thing that was inspiring for me is quite often you see people get things wrong, get defensive, and in the end, the whole situation gets swept under the carpet. It doesn't get addressed, it doesn't get resolved, and the issue happens again and again. And it was something that resonated because I've seen several things like that in the museum space. <laughs> I, I, I've seen, I've been studying controversies, and I have a catalog that dates back to 1911. And many of the issues of racist presentations, racist curatorial work, exhibitions that tell only one part of a narrative. Many of those are not new. They have been on rinse and repeat, documented for the last close to 100 years. I felt like it was something, it was a model that museum and cultural management could learn from. Just wrote down, you said, no pride and no shame. You know, the thing is, I understand that talking about critical issues in the museum and cultural management space, issues like discrimination and racism, they're very uncomfortable discussions. And the discomfort, rather than inspiring people to resolve them, tends to have people shy away from them. And for me, who has to regularly participate in uncomfortable conversations, I'm like, bring it on. Let's all come to the table. Let's all navigate this difficulty. Figure out not just what it means that these things still exist, but how we can work through them and resolve them in a sustainable way. I'm quite honestly really unhappy and dissatisfied with how slow <laughs> people are working to resolve issues around racism and discrimination. It's a bit too slow for my comfort. And quite honestly, I don't think that there is a firm commitment to have this uncomfortable conversations to create frameworks that address some of the larger issues and to move on sustainably. People are ready in general. You mentioned that food and wine seem to be, or were presenting this framework to prevent this sort of thing from happening again. When I read the article, I didn't see that. And that doesn't mean it's not there. I just didn't see it. So I'm curious if you could talk some more about that. Okay. I saw it in both the visual representation of the dish they did. So the first dish had hot sauce and lime and maybe cilantro. The rework of the dish didn't. And, and what changed between those two visual representations was they had a discussion, they listened, and they recreated the dish. The second thing that they did was they published what had happened. They published the whole process. That's evidence, right? So that's a second stake for me in the ground. They published everything from start to finish. The third thing they did was they created a framework for evaluating future culturally 
relevant recipes. And I don't want to say culturally sensitive because every culture's recipes are sacred and important. So those are three distinct things they did. The thing they didn't do though, they didn't articulate a part of the process they had gone through. And mm -hmm. I did that. <laughs> and this is this, I call it the five A's and it's a process of understanding what they'd done, accepting, acknowledging, addressing. So they did all of that, but they didn't frame it. So they didn't say, this is what we've, they said, this is what we've done. But I think it's an important part of the framework for how to apologize. What are essential parts of an apology? What are key things? And they did all of that. They just, I guess they just didn't recognize that was an important set of steps they had taken. But, ha but, but, but having developed a framework, the four C's as they call it, is an important step. And, and I can think of that being applied to museum exhibitions, right? So there was an exhibition out of Africa by the Royal Ontario Museum decades ago that presented a very colonial viewpoint of objects in Africa. And it took a lot of backlash. But those same tone-deaf approaches are still happening today. Imagine that every museum before launching an exhibition in the initial stages of you know deciding what objects are going to be curated what the interpretive plan is going to look like imagine that people sat down and said for every first of all when we build our team what voices do these objects speak to and ensuring that from the get-go through looking at this process like who is involved who are our partners in this what culture are we representing? If we can do that, if we can apply this framework at every stage, we're gonna end up with exhibitions that generally of broader perspectives, more respectful, and that tell stories and not just from a privileged, typically a white privilege perspective. That framework is an important one that can be applied to both creating and setting up teams, that work in exhibitions, that work in museums, to deciding what objects are gonna go in an exhibition or installation. It's a useful framework. Yeah. It's one that yeah. could help. No, it's one that could help. I guess for me, it would be important to just say that there are many places and spaces museums can learn from. Mm. And this food and wine framework is one of them. And then probably highlights the two frameworks and the five A's and the four C's. And I know that sounds cliched, five B's to solve world hunger and things like that. But I feel like having them enumerated, listed, makes it easy to recall. Mm -hmm. And when you can recall easier, you can apply that <laughs> in some way. But museums need to have some systems. So the rate at which discrimination and racism is being addressed is too slow. This might help. I have to admit, after we, after that writer roundtable, I had pulled up, as I was listening to you, I was like, oh, let me pull up this, your article, the Food and Wine article, and, and I revisited it the next day or something. And and I remember my reaction was, wait a second, all, all they did was add some, some visual texture. So, you know, they're on the photography. And I heard myself minimizing things. And having this kind of reaction that was 
I don't know if it was defensive, but it was a little bit like, there was like a part of my brain that was saying, oh, come on. Like, really, is it? And that's when I thought there's something here. There's something here I need to learn, probably. And so that's when I contacted you because I want to just on a personal level, slow myself down and hear those reactions and be more mindful about them. Yeah. It's funny because as a food writer, as a Nigerian food writer, who has grown up with Nigerian food presented a certain way, quite often when I pitch to North American food media companies and I tell them about certain recipes, they have a firm idea using a North American framework and reference system for how they want my recipe to be and how they want it to be presented. There's a particular dish called jollof rice. Jollof rice, when, you, when it's cooked, it's a, a spiced orange red rice cooked in a tomato sauce. The end result is supposed to be grains that are coated with this sauce, but separate. But quite often, there's a North American refusal to accept that's how the dish should look. People want to tend towards a risotto, creamy rice look. And, and I keep going back and forth and saying, that's not the dish. Listen to me. So there's an, there's, there, there are many issues with listening, but there's also a strong sense of supremacy. It's, this is the way I see it. And it's actually the way many other people see it. And therefore it's the way it should be presented. And that's quite often not true. And so Food and Wine did this really simple sounding dish. But if you take, a lot of cultures and cuisines have dishes that are considered sacred, that are presented in a certain way. We can't let our knowledge of what is popular, what comes to us by way of food media, color us from learning about other possibilities. It's this limited viewpoint that is quite often the problem. It's this viewpoint of this is the frame that I see through. This is how I expect it to be. This is what looks nicer, sod everything else. That's where the, the issue is. And unfortunately, many cultural platforms don't have the agency or the space or the voice that certain food media channels have. So there is a responsibility that if you're presenting, if you want to collaborate or work with cultures that are not well-known, that you do it in the right context and, and that you let people who know better advise you and that when they do, you listen. Mm -hmm. Very simple steps that have proven really difficult for people to understand and learn. It's an uncomfortable process when you've always been in this position where what you say goes to, to learn. But we're all constantly navigating spaces and pathways and it would do us good to learn new hows and new whys and new ways of doing and being. That makes me think about, you know, that dismissive voice in my brain is coming from a place of uh, where I come from. Food isn't like, I don't think about food that much, but this is still a matter of representation that, you know, I'm not everybody. But, and I know that, I know that, but I can't keep it in the front of my brain all the time. And that's the problem. Anyway. But can I yeah, say one like, thing though? Please, yeah. You're learning. I think even recognizing, like everything you said to me here spells someone who's listening, someone who's, oh my God, 
that you're catching yourself in the moment. That's the transformational bit. That's the bit where you're like, why is this different for me? Why do I react to this differently? And I can say that for people who have grown up seeking their identity, trying to figure out who they are, food is one tool and one pathway that people do that. And that's why it takes on this importance, right? Because it, it is, it's a slice of the identity pie. It's a slice of the who am I? Why do I exist? Why am I here? How do I navigate the world? And so it's arguably important for, more important for some than others. And people choose different forms. Some it's music, it's literature, but yeah, it's just recognizing, but it requires a lot of self-awareness, a lot of self-awareness to understand that we don't know as much as we think. Even I get caught up in some things. I'm like, oh my God, you mean all these years I've assumed X, Y, Z? And it's a lot of unlearning, but that's the whole point of adulting, right? We, when we know better, we do better, regardless of how unimportant it, it sounds or simple. It's not always the most complex ideas that are the most revolutionary. And that's what this food and wine article showed me. It's literally a simple four-step process. It wouldn't solve all the problems, but it's a pretty good start. And I didn't want to underplay this. I didn't want to underplay the gravitas, the importance of those simple four steps. I wanted people to understand that it really is as simple as challenging ourselves to think differently. So we've got these these frameworks that you've shared. And is there anything that you would like to share with readers and listeners? People who are obviously, these are folks in the museum world. What's the crossover here? Because that's the other thing I love is like, I love finding things that I am totally unfamiliar with and like finding a connection. And I think we've done that, but I just want to offer, you know, let you offer up any, any your final thoughts. The crossover is how do we get more voices represented? How do we build a tapestry? And how do we ensure that when we represent objects that speak to cultures we're not familiar with, we let the owners have agency? And, and while we suggest and we recommend, we must be cognizant of tradition, of presentation. We have to let the objects speak, tell their own stories, rather than imposing stories with certain mindsets. So we let the, let the objects, let, let these objects speak for themselves, let them tell their stories, and let people who are familiar with them be involved and included in that process. So it's a call for curators, for instance, to work with communities, when they're dealing with community objects. It's a call for us to be aware of how people want to be presented. So there are many things that we can learn from, from eating and, and, and understanding food. And, and my desire is really to, I'm very familiar with food. The museum space is a new landscape for me. But I hope that through my work and my understanding and practice of food, I'm able to create, share, document simple processes, 
tools, pathways, frameworks that might help us because we all eat. So these, I, I want to create these simple and share these simple ideas and thoughts that might find pathways in the museum space and help us navigate things equitably and respectfully. Thank you so much, Ozaz, for talking with me and sharing your thoughts and experiences with readers. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed <laughs> talking about it. I'm glad you thought it was something worth sharing because I do. <laughs>